Well, uh, Steve and I just returned from three intense days <laughs> at Synod, and I wanted to pass along Bishop Julian's greetings to you this morning. He asked me to do that. So on behalf of Julian, greetings. You know, like so many stories in the Gospels, today's, readings, today's reading combines straightforward, accessible images with really, really opaque and dissonant elements that make it impossible to appeal to some simplistic or obvious interpretation or application. As with all of Jesus' parables, they're living stories with layers and layers of meaning. And both of these very familiar parables offer simple, familiar images to frame something that's anything but familiar or simple. The kingdom of God, or more specifically, God's will or reign. That's what the word kingdom means, the place of a king's reign, where his will is done. This was the understanding that St. Augustine explored in the city of God. For Christians, a city that's both now and not yet, here and not yet here. How do we get there? By faith. The first parable compares God's reign to a natural characteristic of plants that's familiar to any gardener or farmer. She can put the seed in the ground, but can't really do anything about its growing. In fact, she has so little to do with making the seed actually grow that in this parable, she sleeps pretty much through the entire process of its sprouting and maturation. So God's reign is like a farmer who sleeps through the growing season, but wakes up in time for the harvest. And then Jesus gives us a second. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which, though the smallest of the agricultural seeds, grows into a plant so large and lush that birds can make nests in its shade. Ultimately, this, this mustard seed and farming imagery points us to a kind of passivity on our part. I say kind of passivity because Jesus isn't telling us to abdicate or abandon our responsibility to work. The farmer certainly has to work. The soil has to be tilled. The, the seeds need to be planted. But there's also this rest, this sleep that to me connects these parables to a particular kind of faith life most of us don't experience most of the time. Faith in God to sovereignly work out his will both in our lives and in the world expecting us to work with him, but simultaneously trusting him alone for the outcomes, because they're not ours, they're his. Steve, that guy, shared something I found really, really helpful the other day that may be more applicable to our lives here in Annapolis. 
It's like the difference between rowing and sailing. Both require hard work. But rowing won't get you far, and when you do get there, you'll be exhausted. But if you instead work to harness the wind, the possibilities grow exponentially. I don't know if I got that exactly right. Was it close? Okay, good. The point is, like a sailor, a sleeping farmer knows ultimately the outcomes are not theirs. My counselor, Thad, reminds me of this all the time when I get fretting about things not going right and outcomes not being what I wanted them to be, which does happen occasionally. And he says the same thing always to me, give it back to Jesus. Do the work, but let him work the results because you yourself can produce no meaningful outcomes. It's a hard thing to hear, but I've been working hard to do that little by little, and I'm finding that as I do, I'm consistent, consistently sleeping better and experiencing far more joy in my life. But that's still so difficult and counterintuitive to me. I want to control outcomes. More than that, I desperately want to come off as strong and confident and smart and I'm willing to work however frenetically I have to, to do it. But I believe Jesus is calling us here to a very different way of being with ourselves, with each other, and with him. It's not incidental that of all the references to mustard seeds in the gospel, exactly half of them are connected to faith. For example, Luke 17, 5 and 6 says, The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And in Matthew 17, 20, Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, if you have little faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And I, I'm sorry, I'm smiling. I'm about to start laughing because as a little kid, I remember wanting a rowboat so bad, so just so much that I started praying for a rowboat. I prayed, prayed, and prayed, and I just prayed that one Sunday that when we got home from church, when my dad lifted the garage, there would be a rowboat in the garage. That's what I wanted. So funny because when he lifted the garage and there was no rowboat, I said to myself, I knew it. <laughs> oh, that's faith, I guess. But um, I, just trying to take God, you know, at his word and having a hard time doing it. But genuine trust in God, even in the minutest amount, can lead to remarkable things. I think this is why seven provocative little one-syllable words St. Paul wrote in today's epistle have been on my mind since I read them last week, especially where they're written in the book of 2 Corinthians. And here they are, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. 
We walk by faith and not by sight. This isn't a reference to believing the unbelievable, but rather to orienting all of one's life around a confident faith that God will fulfill his promises, even when we cannot yet see the fullness of them. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. And we could, we could read over these seven little monosyllabic words in a I'm in a hundred times and never let them land, but they've landed with me. And I think I can illustrate why. Maybe. Becoming an instrument rated pilot, one who can fly from here to there without any outside visual references, is not easy. In fact, it's a painful and arduous process or at least it was for me. It involves learning to trust something completely you've never had to trust in that way. Namely, six little gyroscopic vacuum and pedostatic driven instruments. But more than that, it's unlearning. Unlearning to trust what you've always trusted and everyone else trusts without even thinking about it. Namely, your kinesthetic senses, your, your balance and sense of direction, which are largely dominated by what you see and how it affects your inner ear. Ask anyone who suffered with serious vertigo, and they'll tell you how disorienting, disorienting it is when these things get messed up. And your kinesthetic senses will lie to you if they're disoriented. The bottom line is that to become an instrument-rated pilot, you have to learn to untrust what you've trusted all your life, namely what you naturally sense as up, down, right, and left. And it's the unlearning that's the hardest. A few years ago, I made an honest but really stupid mistake. I let my uh, CFI certificate expire, which meant I had to be retested by the FAA. And I could add the instrument instructor rating in doing that. So that's what I decided to do. I trained and trained, but my training was always with another CFI in the right seat. And by the way, in that training, you can cheat because there's no way to really effectively cover your eyes so you can still see the instrument. So all you have to do is dip your foggles down and you can see out over them into the horizon. And I will confess to you that I cheated a fair amount of the time. But I still managed to pass my test and now I was the expert. And as I flew with my very first student into dark overcast, what was going on in my head is what were those idiots at the Federal Aviation Administration thinking? But in IMC or instrument meteorological conditions, when you often can't see your wingtips or the propeller in front of you, much less the ground, two things must happen. You have to put your trust fully in those instruments. And you have to untrust renounce, deny, and repudiate what you have always trusted. 
Walking by faith and not by sight is a little like that. It's not just learning a new way, but more than that, it's unlearning an old way. And that's a painful and arduous process. It certainly was for Paul, and that's partly why this passage leaves me provoked. It's reality, but it's a process I'd rather not have to endure. Why can't I just try harder? I'm super good at that. Or why can't I just let go and let God? Why can't it just be easy? Just before what we read today, Paul recounts tremendous hardship, heartache, and struggle in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What treasure? He's just told us before this, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That's the treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay or our unreliable bodies to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And listen to this. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And I think this may offer a clue as to how we might begin to unlearn walking by sight so that we can learn to walk by faith. One of the really precious gifts of 2 Corinthians is that through Paul, we learn a stunning paradox of the life of faith. God's power is much more clearly seen and more deeply savored in our weakness than in our strength. And our weakness can actually grow our faith. Paul was deeply concerned for the Corinthian church. Super apostles, air quotes are important here because Paul is using the term sarcastically. But these guys had found their way to Corinth, parasitic charlatans who'd followed in Paul's wake and were now maligning him. So Paul wrote this letter. But his primary concern wasn't his reputation. He wrote because these men were siphoning glory from God and imperiling the Corinthians by distorting the gospel. Parenthetically, we must never change or distort the gospel to satisfy us. It is the faith that it says in Jude 3 was once for all delivered to the saints. That's why I want to say this as clearly as I possibly can. We do not apply our, the scriptures to ourselves. We apply ourselves to the scriptures. But these guys Paul is talking about were discrediting him in order to inflate their self-importance. This forced Paul to call out these posers and contrast their doctrine, character, and labors with his own. But it was genuinely tortuous for him. 
At one point in defending himself, he said it felt like as, as if he were talking like a madman. Reluctantly, in chapter 11, verses 16 through 30, Paul lists his, his revelations, the revelations he's, he's received, uh, the ways that he had suffered for the sake of the gospel in the churches, and how he'd never personally benefited financially from the Corinthians. It's a long and fairly impressive list. Why was Paul so reluctant to talk about these things? It was way more than self-conscious awkwardness, awkwardness or false humidity. Humidity. Humility. Paul was very concerned that in drawing attention to his strengths, which were numerous, he might obscure the grace of God. He'd be doing just exactly what those super apostles were doing. Boasting about his, himself was dangerous. How? When we read of Paul's lashings, beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, danger, hunger, exposure, and mind-blowing revelations, what might we be tempted to think? Well, next to Paul, I'm one sorry Christian. I do. Man, I got to try harder. And that's exactly what Paul was fearful of. Because when that happens, we look away from Jesus, stop trusting in the sufficiency of his grace and power, and look to our own experience and achievements, especially as compared with others, because we can always find someone worse. We look to those things as the basis of our acceptance with God. We walk by sight and not by faith. Our fallen natures just crave self-glory. We seek the admiration, or admiration of others. So we want our successes and our strengths to be known and our failures and weaknesses hidden. My father used to always say this little bit whenever somebody would brag about themselves. He that tooteth not his own horn, the same shall not be tooted. <laughs> My dad was a terrible dad joke teller. But you know, since strong, competent, high achievers earn human admiration, we're tempted to believe that they impress God in a similar way. But that's the last thing that Paul wants us to believe. Paul knew better than most. It's not human achievement that showcases the kingdom of God. It is human helplessness. I ask you frequently what all this stuff I'm wearing means to God. Nothing. It means nothing to God. But it means something to me. It means that I am yoked to Christ. That I am covered with a righteousness that's not my own. This is, this is baked into our liturgy because it's that important. Apart from the grace and power of God, there is no health in us. Apart from the grace and power of God, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under his table. Do you believe this? Are you content with weakness 
These are questions I'm asking myself. For all his attainments, Paul saw himself in 1 Timothy 1.15 as the foremost of sinners. He wrote in Philippians 3.8-9 that apart from God's grace and giving him the free gift of Christ's righteousness, all of his achievements, and there were a lot, were garbage. He knew well the destructiveness of self-righteousness, he said in Philippians 3, 6 through 9. Paul knew that he'd worked harder than just about everybody, but he could rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that the outcomes were not his, but God's alone. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the growth. So neither we Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And one reason he knew this so profoundly was that Jesus had disciplined him, knowing how Paul's indwelling pride might respond to the power and fruit and might respond to the power and fruitfulness he would experience. He gifted, and I use this word intentionally, he gifted him with a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, it would be a continual and painful reminder to Paul that he depended on Jesus for everything. But because he was human like us, Paul didn't immediately recognize the thorn and the weakness it wrought as a gift. In fact, he pleaded for deliverance, but Jesus replied in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, my reign is made perfect. How? in weakness. And this opened up a world of insight to Paul. God showing his strength through weak things is laced through all of redemptive history. Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, the Old Testament is very candid about their foibles and their failures and culminating the, with the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God, for it is written, catch this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Those quote-unquote strong things you're trusting in, especially yourself, you have to learn to untrust them. Because learning to untrust what we have always trusted is the first hard step of learning to walk by sight. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ I am content with weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's then that I'm walking in faith and not by sight. In yourself, you are weak. Are you content with that? Can you, like the sleeping farmer, rest in it? In yourself, you are unworthy. In fact, apart from grace, there is nothing in you to commend you to God. Me too. I don't mean commend you to me too. I mean me too. Can we rest in that? His grace is sufficient. And here's the secret. The more aware you are of your weakness to produce any meaningful outcomes, including your right standing before the righteous judge, 
the more humble, prayerful, thankful, patient, gracious, content, and even joyful you will be because you are more aware of God's strength when you're weak than when you're strong. Don't get me wrong. God will absolutely use the strengths that he has given you, and I hope you'll allow him to do so. He certainly used Paul's. But if it's faith that you long for, the kind of genuine trust in God that even in the smallest amounts, like a mustard seed, can grow into remarkable things, then recognize and even thank God for your weakness, which makes his power perfect. That is the first step of walking by faith. And you'll have a chance to take that step in just a few minutes as we celebrate communion together. Thanks be to God.